The talk you are about to hear is by Roshi Amala Wrightson, teacher at the Auckland Zen Center. <clears throat> Today is uh, Tuesday, the 30th of January, 2024. And um, this evening, what we're going to do is continue with the text that we were looking at during the Sishin. Um, we got partway through it and we'll really spend this and the next Taisho at least um, f um, completing the uh, study of this, of this affirming faith, faith and mind. Um, just for people who weren't in Sishin, um, affirming faith and mind is, a, is an ancient Chan Zen text and it's attributed to Sung San, uh, the third ancestor, so two, two masters after Bodhidharma. There was Bodhidharma, then Huayka, and then uh, Sung Tan. And we're just going to um, take up where we left off. Um, it's quite a circular text. It comes back to the same themes over and over again, so I don't think it's too tricky to jump into the middle of it and, and get something out of it. So... Um, I'll read the verse and then we'll, we'll um, discuss it a little bit. I find what the page number is. Ninety-six. So the first, the first verse. But live in bondage to your thoughts and you will be confused, unclear. There's different ways we can understand this, this living in bondage to our thoughts. Um, clearly to, to, to function in, in our daily lives, we have to do some thinking. Um, so from one point of view, you could say this, this, this um, living in bondage to our thoughts doesn't refer to all types of thinking. And certainly it's very helpful to be able to recognize what, what Philip Kaplow, my teacher's teacher, used to call thoughting. Thinking, you could say, would be actual problem solving, um, learning, analyzing, but then thoughting is more are ruminating, are worrying, are repetitive thoughts that go round and round, uh, are compulsive things. In other words, everybody I think can recognize these in, in um, it's the stuff that's, it's not fresh, it's, it's the same old, same old that we've heard in, in, in our minds again and again and again. One uh, can't remember who it is now. Suggests that whenever these these types of thoughts you come into the mind, you say "Hello, mind." You, you so you give yourself a little space between you and the and the, the messages that are coming with these thoughts. And that way, we extricate ourselves from the bondage of our thinking. Um, it is possible to. Um, 
attached to no thought and, and be in bondage to no thought. Um, Alan Wallace, the uh, Vajrayana teacher, he somewhere tells the story of a young man who was practicing in somewhere in um, uh, Asia where he was, where Alan Wallace was, who was, was convinced that the goal of practice was literally no thinking. And uh, he, he actually lost his mind because of that thought. Um, to, apparently he was, he became in a sort of vegetative state from attachment to non-thinking. So that's ord yeah, ordinary, ordinary thoughting is, is uh, something we can come to recognize and, and not be caught up so much, so caught up in it. But I think this, but live in bondage to your thoughts and you will be confused and unclear, can also be taken further um, and really include, in a sense, all thinking. Because thoughts are, by their nature, dualistic. They, they work they, by dividing up the world good and bad, has and has not, true and false. And if we get, if we get um, fixated here, it's very, it can lead to a great deal of confusion. Afflictive emotions, different parts of us warring against other parts. Here's what Shen Yin says. To be in bondage to your thoughts means to be influenced and carried away by various conditions in your surroundings. And of course it includes our reactions to those surroundings. If you do this, you are grasping the false. You can try to limit your thoughts by using a method. But in fact, as long as the method is still in your mind, you are still abide, abiding in the false, not in the real. Um, method for people who may not be familiar with um, Master Sheng Yin is um, what the term he uses where we would use practice. So it's a challenging idea here that actually um, even if you've got a practice in your mind, you're not actually um, abiding in the real. So you have this, this thought, you, you're repeating it again and again. He says, but in that case, should you discard the method? The problem with discarding the method is that while you may seem to have no thoughts, you may still fall into a foggy state. Even though the method is not real, it is even worse to be suspended in a nebulous frame of mind. The ideal state would be to stop, drop the fogginess along with the method, to be unattached to conditions. What does it mean to be unattached to conditions? It means there are no thoughts in your mind, but whatever appears is perfectly clear. So it's easy to be deceived and think that a relatively thought-free mind is really clear, really um, aware. But this is the, this is the ultimate fruit of practice to be able to, to um, live and act f freely from this place of no thought. 
and then when necessary think. He goes on to say a little more about this state of no thought. When you reach this state, you will perceive everything is equal. This is because at that time, to you, nothing really exists. Reality cannot be divided into individual people and objects. When nothing is in front of you, it is the same as when there are many things there. In a room full of people, you would not be feel crowded. And if the room were empty, you would not feel lonely. There's a sense of kind of completeness when you're in this, this uh, state. Repleteness. Nothing that needs to be added, nothing that needs to be taken away. Though there is no discrimination in your mind when relating to people, you distinguish between a monk and a layperson, or a man and a woman. You follow worldly conventions. However, if your mind is blank, this does not mean you have discarded conditions and reached the state of no thoughts. The blank state would be equivalent to the foggy state rather than to the true empty state. Sometimes when you are exhausted, your mind takes a rest and you are th not thinking of anything in particular. Do not confuse this with enlightenment. The practice is another way of grasping onto thoughts, but it is a way that allows us to eventually overcome grasping. This is the way we can understand the koan, is it's, it's a thought that can take us beyond thoughts, or a word that can take us out of words and into silence. So the method is a way of grasping th onto thoughts, but in a way that allows us to eventually overcome grasping. Using the method effectively is like knitting a sweater. You cannot drop one stitch, otherwise the whole piece will start unraveling. The method should be practiced in the same dense manner. Dense means that your attention is so continuous that there is no space in between for any interruptions. That's, that's what we're aspiring to for there to be no gaps, or, or another way of thinking about it is a, f a continual flow. One um, Hindu master talked about uh, practicing like, like one pours oil from a, from a bottle, a smooth and continuous flow. Next verse. This heavy burden weighs you down, so why keep judging good and bad? Um, this echoes something that Shakespeare wrote. Um, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Also, it, 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 this, this line, Sort of takes us back, circles us back to the beginning of, of the chant. 
The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. When preferences are cast aside, the way, way stands clear and undisguised. Its opposite of judging wood and bed is, is a burden. It weighs us down. It's dukkha, suffering. Um, this, this text is teaching us again and again and again to um, break our habitual patterns. And, and those habitual patterns are based on um, these three ways that we experience things. We experience things as being pleasant, being unpleasant, or being neutral. And the thing is that we don't leave it at that, but we, um, we grasp at the pleasant, we reject the unpleasant, and then very often we ignore the neutral stuff, even though it may be important. So Sangsan is, is repeatedly reminding of us to, to let go of the grasping. There's a, um, a very helpful Tibetan text called the Lojong Teachings. And one of the, the slogans in there suggests that if we take up Dharma practice, we should identify our strongest attachment and start with that one. Start where we, we, we feel the most um, hooked. The next verse, if you would walk the highest way, do not reject the sense domain. If you would walk the highest way, do not reject the sense domain. When the Buddha came to his awakening, he rejected two extremes in his, that he was going to, to um, how he was going to formulate his teaching. On the one hand, he rejected self-indulgence, which had been his early life as a, as a wealthy prince in a, in a kingdom. So not pandering to our body's needs, you could say, but then also not getting into asceticism or self, uh, um, what do we call it, not flagellation, but um, Denial. So he and he proposed to find a middle way between these two extremes, and this this line about not rejecting the sense domain, you could say, is the, reminding us not to to fall into nihilism or or um, asceticism, not to reject what we experience through our senses, not to reject the body or see it as impure and troublesome, which is very powerful in a lot of, of religions. And often often the female body as well as being more more um, 
aversive. The next one gives us gives us why not to do this. It says, so we've said we've read, um, do not reject the sense domain. For, and then the next verse, for as it is whole and complete, the sense world is enlightenment. For as it is whole and complete, the sense world is enlightenment. This this particular teaching is one that that I found very very helpful going through years working on koans, not to reject my surroundings or myself, not to reject the experiences of, of the senses, but to, to have the faith that whole and complete, leaving nothing out, the sense world is actually nothing other than enlightenment. bit from Xing Yin. He says, as, you, as soon as you attach to something, you lose the direction of the method. So, so we can say that as soon as we attach to something we lose our way but because we have the method we can we can find our way back to the present by just shifting our attention from whatever has grabbed us back to the to the koan or the breath or shikantaza he goes on yesterday somebody asked if attaining buddhahood does not depend on practice why must i practice <laughs> this is a, question many of us ask when our knees are killing us. And he says, by the, from the time of Shakyamuni Buddha, it was said that Buddhahood could not be created by practice. This was especially emphasized by the sixth ancestor, Hui Nung. However, practice will help you to discover the innate Buddha nature Generally, people think of vexations, um, suffering, as something inside that, that has to be destroyed. They think of the Buddha mind as something outside, beyond their reach. That has to be grasped. The constant effort to destroy vexations and grasp Buddha mind is very, very burdensome. This heavy burden weighs you down, as the chant says. Even though we may intellectually understand that, that the Buddha is not outside us, we still find ourselves acting out of that assumption. It can take many, many years to, to whittle that away, to, to really... embody it, that we don't have to destroy anything or, or create anything at all. He continues, 
Chinese Buddhists have an expression, in life you don't practice, yet you're on your deathbed you would seize the Buddha's foot. In other words, at the last minute, such people are afraid they may drop down into the hells and thus implore Buddha to take them up to the Pure Land. Their attitude shows that they consider the hells and the Pure Land to be external realms. In reality, all realms lie within ourselves, but it is precisely the greed of someone who wants the Buddha to save him that prevents him from being reborn in the Pure Land. Being reborn in a place of purity, we'd say. This is because whatever you grasp is false. We can wrap our minds around that. Whatever we grasp is false. As soon as we grasp something, we've divided ourselves off from it. That's the way in which it is false. If you were to succeed in grabbing the Buddha's foot and being transported to the pure land, it would turn out to be illusory. The true pure land is not located in any particular place and the true Buddha is formless. A Buddha with a form is just a single manifestation of Buddha, a transformation body. Thus you should not be greedy and seek enlightenment without or be disgusted with vexations within. If you neither desire nor reject anything, you will feel at ease and joyful. All the, the Buddha figures we have around the place, Buddhas and Bodhisattva figures, they're um, just uh, transformation bodies of uh, the formless Buddha that is uh, nowhere and everywhere. If you neither desire nor reject anything, you'll feel at ease and joyful. The one vehicle is the Buddha way. <clears throat> what is the difference between Buddhahood, <coughs> Buddhahood and enlightenment? Buddhahood is attaining the ultimate, whereas enlightenment is seeing Buddha nature without encompassing it fully. You know the taste of the ocean, but you have not yet become the ocean. This is an important um, distinction. Um, that most of us may have um, tasted the ocean, but where none of us yet have become the ocean completely. He continues, if you want to follow the Buddha way, do not be repelled by the sense realm or feel any aversion towards your environment. Here at the center, and he's talking about New York City here. We are bombarded with disturbances, traffic, radios, trains, even the birds and the wind. At first it is difficult to remain impassive to these noises, but after three days or so, you're probably not even going to hear the cars passing by. Now, on Tuesday night it's quite quiet here in Onehonga, but on a Thursday night we usually have the uh, big screens at the pub over the road and lots of people and cars and voices and coming and going. But in the end, it isn't so problematic. We just sit and the sounds come and go. Then Stel tells a story of a, his, one of his students. 
Years ago, I had a student who decided on her own to do a solitary retreat. She went to a bungalow colony in the country. At first, she picked the cabin nearest to the road, thinking it would be more convenient for shopping, for supplies, I assume. But finding the noise of the traffic too annoying, she keeps, kept switching to cabins farther back towards the wooded area. Finally, she got one right in the middle of the woods, only to discover that the sound of the birds was deafening. Later, she asked me, how did you manage to practice in the mountains? And um, he told her that he too was bothered by sounds and ended up stuffing up his ears. Uh, but then he noticed when he did that that he heard his heartbeat. And then he says, well, the best way to forget everything around you, just use the method. There's another story somewhere about uh, somebody going off all fired up to do solo retreat, had a cabin next to a little creek, and then found himself continually going to the creek to rearrange the stones in the bed of the creek because of the... the um, tunes that he was hearing in, this, in, the, in the, uh, the water racing over the pebbles. There's, of course, nothing wrong with our environments at all. It's, it's all coming from our uh, picking and choosing, uh, our thinking things in terms of good or bad. Not being disturbed by, by um, things also includes, of course, the people in the Zendo. Um, and he tells another little story about a, a student who had, was wrapping herself in a blanket for sitting. And every time she sat to meditate, she swung the bank blanket over her shoulder, the shawl, and um, would regularly strike her, her seating neighbour in the face with the, the tip of the blanket. And um, Ching Yin tells that he was annoyed. He was, for three days he was annoyed by this. But then he remembered about the instruction not to be bothered by others. And then he just cultivated an attitude of whenever she struck him with a blanket, it just was her getting ready to sit, and it didn't have anything to do with him. He didn't need to, didn't need to take it personally. I think this is a huge, huge um, boom when we when we realise it that um, we don't need to take offence personally when when things are uh, uh, vexatious in some way. As it is whole and complete, the sense world is enlightenment.
Master Shenyan continues with the same topic of not being affected by the environment. If, if you enjoy your surroundings too much, you will not even think about practicing, but if you despise your surroundings, you will not be able to practice even if you try. Um, for, for the night sitting that we have in, in Sishin, we sometimes tell people, well, sit, sit outside somewhere, but not looking out on, a, on a, a beautiful scene, because then you may just start waxing lyrical about the beautiful scene you're seeing, but rather to hem in your um, awareness with a, with a, a tree trunk or a, or a rock or a wall. Um, Because if, you, if you're getting into enjoying your surroundings, then you won't really feel any, the need for the practice. Um, but, it, but on the other hand, if you're, if you're experiencing a lot of aversion, you won't be able to practice even if you try. He says, it is impossible to throw off your environment all at once. It must be peeled away like an onion. In order to do this, it would be helpful to think of the environment as three concentric circles. The outermost circle is the world around you, the middle one is your body, and the inner circle is your mind. On the first day of retreat, I said that you, should, you must forget your affairs in the world outside of the Chan Center. In other words, put aside all thoughts of past and future. But once you do that, new thoughts related to the world inside the center will come up. It may be a smaller world, but it is still external to the body. You may be distracted by the others, or you may become attached to my words, or even my presence. If you limit your attention to your body, either you feel comfortable or uncomfortable. It is difficult to totally forget the body, your legs are painful, your back hurts, your head aches, your, your neck is strained, your skin itches, or you just feel tired. Ignore any sensations, pleasant or unpleasant, that may arise. On the other hand, if the pain is too great to ignore, consider your body as a corpse. To be able to conquer your pain and your fear of death requires great determination. If you can develop this willpower in Chan training, you will be able to succeed in any other endeavor. This thinking of the body as a corpse, it's designed to um, weaken our attachment to the body. When we, when we contemplate that it is this body of ours is um, not permanent. It's not something we can totally rely on. It's, uh, as Samuel Becker said, we're, we're born astride the grave. He continues, once you narrow yourself down to the mental environment, there are two things you are involved with, the method and stray thoughts. You will find that your mind is just as full as the outside environment. As the Sutra of Complete Environment says, 
Enlightenment says rather, mental activities are just a shadow of the sensory world. Mental activities are just a shadow of the sensory world. Our minds are conditioned by what we experience through our senses. A shadow of the sensory world, a kind of projection. Therefore, insubstantial. Thus, if you manage to dispense with your environment, your mind will also disappear and you will reach great realization. Next verse. The wise do not strive after goals. The foolish put themselves in bonds. The wise do not strive after goals. The foolish put themselves in bonds. So this, this theme continues of our uh, tying ourselves in knots. I used to get into this again and again on the last night of Sashin, where I would um, perhaps have a relatively empty mind by that stage, but then then some thought would come into my mind and and I would castigate myself for there being a thought there, a thought arising, um, instead of just letting them come and go, float by. I would put myself in chains and I'd literally physically feel like I was bound up in chains. Shengyan says, the more you strive after liberation, the more you tie yourself up. This is also true of seeking safety, health, and security. Once I was approached by a life insurance agent who did not know I was a monk. He said, our insurance policy is excellent. No matter what happens to you, your wife and children will be taken care of. I asked, if I don't have a wife and children? He had nothing to say after that. He saw that I had no worries about death. He goes on to, to tell of a monk he knew who actually took out a policy so that his funeral services would be taken care of when he died. And apparently, Sheng Yin reports say, having said to him, don't you think that a monk would be buried in any case? Even if he is not, maggots would eventually dispose of the body. practitioner should not consider his own security. Otherwise, he would not be able to practice in the mountains far away from society. Whatever fears or desires you can discard will give you that much more freedom. This is, this is something we have to remind ourselves of. Whatever fears of or desires we can discard, in that measure we have freedom. When we feel particularly unfree, then it can be really helpful to ask, what am I holding on to here? What is, what am I, if I feel stuck, what is it that I imagine is in my way? Whatever protection you seek will become your karmic obstruction. 
Whatever protection you seek will become your karmic obstruction. This is why you should not look for something here you can take home with you. In other words, in the, not look for something in the retreat that you can take home. There's this, this common saying now with, with seminars or lecture, lectures, what is the take home? What is the take home of Sashin? Take home is take home nothing. Leave behind something maybe. He says, this is why you should not look for something here you can take home with you. On the contrary, contrary, you should try to lose what you brought in. Why should you add to your burdens? After you learn something and absorb it, then it becomes part of you and you should be able to throw it away. Just as when you eat, you obtain the nutrients from the food and then eliminate the waste. If you carried it home with you, your bowels would be in serious trouble. Uh, we, each of us probably have a partic particular attachment, attachments which are strong and habitual in us and um, can seem very hard to let go of. Could be anxiety, could be anger, indignation, could be um, self-pity. But to do our best to just shift our mind off these habitual thought patterns. Uh, and every time we do that, every time we shift the mind from the, the thoughts to the practice, then that's weakening the power of those thoughts ever so slightly. And it's a, it really is a, a chipping away process. These habits have built up in, in accretions over many, 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 many years, if not lifetimes. And so we, we, we chip away at them. They're not going to go away anytime soon. Um, but we can, yes, we can have faith in our minds that, that, that in, in the degree to which we do discard these things, then we free ourselves up. Next verse. The one way knows no differences. The foolish cling to this and that. Jingyan says, there are no different dharmas or objects of existence. There is only one dharma, not two. But you cannot say that this one perfect dharma either exists or does not exist. To exist, it would have to be opposed to something else that does not, and vice versa. Buddhism does not speak in terms of opposites or of the absolute. Nothing can be absolutely affirmed or denied. 
When you attach to or reject anything, you are in a position of duality with that object. Um, I heard James Shaw on the radio um, tonight when I was cooking dinner. And at one point he said, I'm authentic. And it always seems to me a little bit inauthentic to say something like that. I'm authentic. When you attach to or reject anything, you're in a position of duality with that object. When you say I'm authentic, you're pushing yourself into in a position of duality with yourself. Was the classic one with with this is um, if you say I am enlightened, I am an enlightened, I am enlightened, because immediately you're you're putting forth the idea that there's a self that can be enlightened, that can be something, and saying I am deluded is problematic as well. Time is nearly up. We can probably just do one more verse here. Um, if there is only if there's only one Dharma, it is erroneous to seek the Dharma outside or within yourself. That would be create a duality. Some people imagine that getting enlightened is seeing a Buddha nature within themselves. I tell you that there is nothing to see. Whatever you see is an illusion. Buddha nature is empty nature. If you seek something, how can you get to emptiness? The Diamond Sutra says that there is no Dharma form and also that there is nothing that is not the form of the Dharma. Thus we should not become attached to either existence or emptiness. And then the, the verse that comes after that. To seek great mind with thinking mind is certainly a grave mistake. To seek great mind with thinking mind is certainly a grave mistake. This is a very um, useful signpost for us in our practice. Not to imagine that we can work out life and its questions. When you practice, you are using your mind to work on your mind. You, you use a deluded thought, the method, to reduce your other deluded thoughts. But the real Chan is methodless. No method is to sit with nothing in your mind and to be clearly aware that there is nothing in your mind. Moment by moment, maintain the state of no thought. This is a, a pretty good um, thumbnail sketch description of the practice of shikantaza, which is really the, the flowering of our practice, a no practice. He says, if a thought arises, just return to no thought. 
And he points out that if you are in this state, then you'll be able to respond spontaneously to a question or a statement that is put to you. He suggests that we need a good t t 20 years of, or more of solid practice to get to this point where we can truly be empty-minded and aware of being that so at the same time. It's difficult when we have, have daily responsibilities and commitments, that, but it isn't impossible. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz